Good morning, LCM. Good morning. Today is September 29th, 2019. Today we're going to share on one of the seven core principles of seven core principles of LCM. Uh, I want to remind you that these are core principles that every LCM man and woman should follow. This is what makes an LCM man and woman. So when you're hearing these things, obviously they're things that we've shared on a lot. Obviously they're things we we're reiterating. But these are the core principles that every LCM man, woman should believe. Today we're going to be talking about favor for Israel. And uh, the subtitle for today's message is Capturing God's Heart. Why is that important, Capturing God's Heart? We, we pray, oh God, share with me your heart. And oftentimes, we forget one facet of God's heart that really doesn't come to mind at first glance. And that is God's heart for his nation, Israel. It doesn't matter what theologians think. It doesn't matter this argument or that argument. What matters most is what is God's heart on the matter. I want to share with you this message I share with you with unceasing sorrow and burning zeal to see the nation of Israel recognize her king. I promise I will not leave you indifferent this morning. I'm not going to leave you bored. I'm not going to leave you uh, idle in any way. I have wept about this message more than I have ever cried about anything in my life in the past week. More than my own sin, more than our sin, more than my own family, more than anybody I know. I have wept more about this message because God has been burning this in me. And I hope to transfer that to you this morning. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start, I want you to turn to Genesis 17, verse 3 through 8. And while you do that, I'm going to give you kind of an outline. Many of you are familiar with the seven days of creation, correct? Day one, we have a little slide for you, day one, we'll share that in a little while. Day one, God created light, darkness, he separated the two. Day two. There are separation of waters revealing something heavenly. You can go ahead and take the slide off for now. Day three, seed-bearing plants that bear fruit according to their own kind. Day four, heavenly signs as a witness. Day five of creation, God creates uh, the waters and they're multiplied. Day six, livestock created and man placed above all of those things. And then day seven is the Sabbath where God rested from his creation. I want to remind you that the story of Genesis is not about the creation of the world. Okay, there are, there's one chapter, maybe merging into the second chapter of Genesis, where it's talking about God's creation. There's only one chapter. Genesis is about the beginning of one life, one family, and one nation. Amen? So if we go to Genesis 17, we've already kind of revealed to you something we're going to share in a little while. It's okay. Genesis 17, verse 3 through 8. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. We see the man. You will be the father of many nations. We see a plan. And no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations out of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish, establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. You will, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, the whole Canaan 
The whole land of Canaan, where you now are as an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. Everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So God doesn't just make a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with his children and the generations after him. He makes a covenant between the man and the land and the plan that he would be their God and they would inherit this for eternity. We turn to Genesis 18. Verse 18. We see that Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. The world is blessed because of that today. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he promised him. We see here that that life, that one life, becomes a family. God's intention was to choose Abraham so that he would direct his family, Jewish family, and that that family would take it even further. And notice, that plan does not need to be adjusted or amended for faithless theologians. That plan doesn't need to be adjusted. That plan is perfect in all of its ways. That plan God is causing to happen, even today. If we turn to Deuteronomy 26, verse 18, it says, And the Lord has declared this day that you are His people, His treasured possession as He promised, and that you are to keep all His commands. He has declared that He will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations He has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as He promised. That is to be foremost in God's plan, is to create a nation out of that family that would be treasured to Him. That plan does not need, again, to be adjusted or amended for faithless theologians. Psalm 105, verse 8, says that God remembers His covenant forever. The word He commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant He made with Abraham, the man, the oath He swore to Isaac, He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan, as the portion you will inherit. Again, they have to inherit the land, and they have to retain the land. If they don't retain the land, then it is no longer a promise that God is fulfilling. There has to be retention forever. Now, the promise here is everlasting, doesn't stop. And that plan, again, does not need to be adjusted or amended for faithless theologians. What happened with Israel, God gave them the law so that they would obey His law, and therefore that present generation that was in the land would stay in the land. He made clear promises that if you obey these decrees, I will not send you out. The thing with the law is, who could fully obey it? Honestly. Paul says that the law is perfect, the law is righteous, but who could obey it? It's like putting a sign on a wall that says, don't touch wet paint. What do you do? You touch it. And what Israel did... As any of us would have done, they failed to keep the law in its fullness. And therefore, God came up with the plan. We could see that in Ezekiel 36. Turn with me to verse 24. Shout there when you're there. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. Why does he have to take them out of the nations? Because he dispersed them to the nations. He sent them into exile. And God promised, I will take you out of the nations. Still unfulfilled today. 
I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land, uh, own land, still unfulfilled today. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your, in, your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Hallelujah. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Hallelujah. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Why does he have to do that? Because the laws are contingent to staying in the land. God's going to give them a spirit so that they always follow the laws. I will save you. Sorry, verse 28. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. They will no longer suffer disgrace. Here it says because of famine. We can, we can come up with many examples where God says you will no longer suffer shame. You will no longer suffer for your sins, yet still unfulfilled. We know that this is the man, the land, and the plan. Here we see the whole nation, the original family that God promised. The original family. We often read this and we, we preach on it and we say, oh man, it's, it's, this is a promise for us. But it was a promise for them first. It was promised so that they would walk in the Spirit and you New, you New Testament scholars will see that this starts with one life and Jesus who affects his one family and will transform a whole nation. Amen? Amen. This reminds us of Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, inspired by the Lord, he saw something coming and he said the same. He said in verse 31, a time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Who is he making it with? The original family. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. And write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Yet again, not fulfilled. But Jesus started this process. You all know that. Jesus started this process. I want to share with you, we can bring up that slide again in uh, the book of John. Go to the uh, other one where we're showing Genesis and John at the same time. We found that in the book of John, it mirrors the creation in, in Genesis 1. Most of you are familiar that, of course, the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John, as most of you are familiar with, starts with the phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Is it possible that John is writing something in the same vein that has already been written? Entirely. We've learned that that's what the Jewish writers did, is they used the same homiletics. But we started looking through the book of John, and we found something. You can type in your concordance the next day, and you'll find that it shows up in the book of John six times. Meaning, there are seven days in the book of John. So day one, when you're reading in, in, uh, in the book of John, day one is, in the beginning, there was the word... It says in John 1 that the word is light. Darkness can't overcome it. Do you see how that corresponds with day one in Genesis? 
Day two, the separation of waters revealed something heavenly in the book of John. John came baptizing with water, and that was to reveal who the Messiah was. Day three, disciples that bear fruit according with their own kind. Day three in Genesis, seed-bearing plants. Day three in John are where the first disciples come to Jesus. He is bearing seed after his own kind. Day four, Jesus says to Philip, literally, the next day, Jesus goes and sees Philip. It says, he's talking to Philip, and he goes to Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, you will see heaven open and angels descending on the Son of Man. Day four in Genesis, heavenly signs as a witness to what God is doing. Day five in Genesis, creatures of the water multiplied. Day five in the book of John, Jesus breaks the fish and he distributes it. Day six, In Genesis, livestock created and man placed from above. Day six, Jesus comes as the ruler over livestock on a colt. He's riding on a donkey as king. And the disciples are asking him while they're shouting, Hosanna, show us the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect representation of God's image, just like in day six in Genesis, man was created in God's image. Do you see that? Day seven. Everybody knows day seven. The Sabbath. The Sabbath is is day seven where God rested from all his work. You want to know what day seven is, John? They were taking the bodies off the crosses because they didn't want them to hang during the Sabbath. The next day was the Sabbath. Jesus was laid in his tomb and he was resting from all his work on day seven. Just like God was resting in day seven. We see an incredible pattern uh, we were studying this, and you can also see similarities in the book of 1 John. How does he start the book of 1 John? That, what, that which is from the beginning. We see those patterns all over. But we, what we start to notice is just as Genesis is not the story of the creation of the world, the creation takes place in a single chapter and uh, in only 31 verses. Genesis is not about the creation of the world, and neither is John. Genesis is the story of Abraham as transformed One life who forms a family, one family, so that a nation could represent God. One nation. Here we see that in the same language as Genesis, it is understood that John is not about the creation of some alternative entity. That's not what he's doing here. John's gospel is about the redemption, new creation, the transformation of Israel through its its king, through its promised Messiah. As always starts with Jesus, the king of Israel. He is the one life that is transformed. He is ministering first and foremost to the one family that will reach the nations. And he is the king of the one nation that represents God's plan to the world. When we see the book of John and the seven days of creation, we are seeing the one life, one family, one nation taken to the nation of Israel and fulfilling God's promises to the nation of Israel. But it's not over there. Jesus made it very clear that his mission started in Israel. When he said in Matthew 15, verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Only to the lost sheep of Israel. It's something to take in that the Savior of the world, as so he's called, started by saying, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. John's gospel goes out of the way to emphasize this point. In John 1.31, John the Baptist is saying, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed in Israel. In Israel. The reason why John came baptizing. In John 1.49, Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of 
Israel. We want to make that distinction very clear this morning. He is the king of the Jews. John 12, verse 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. He is the king of Israel. Clearly, Jesus is the transformed life, but is the king an example to all Israel foremost. As you will see throughout this message, as has been done to the Jews throughout uh, history and all over the world, as has been done to Jesus. As Jesus was crucified on a cross, so the Jews have been killed under the sign of the cross. So as Jesus has been despised and rejected, so have the Jews been despised and rejected. Isn't it incredible that he is their king and he is perfectly fitted for them and they are perfectly fitted for him. He will see his whole family transformed into the nation that God said they would be. The surprise is that you, all of us, could be included into Ohad's family. That is the surprise, is that we could be included into the Jewish-Israeli promise. Think Acts 15 for a second. Even Paul in Acts 15 had to, had to go to Jerusalem because in Galatians he says, I fear I had ran my race in vain. He's saying that because men are coming from Jerusalem and saying you must be circumcised. This was a huge question in the New Testament. How can Gentiles enter in without actually walking under the law? It was a huge surprise. And Paul had to seek counsel on that matter. Even Paul. As we move on to Romans, notice that your inclusion does not mean Israel's exclusion. I know you know that, but I want to share it over and over. As we move on, your inclusion does not mean their exclusion. Paul does not need to be adjusted, and the plan doesn't need to be adjusted or amended for faithless theologians. Let's read what Paul said. Let's go to Romans 4, chapter 4, verse 9. After Paul had gone to, Act, gone to uh, Jerusalem in the council in Acts 15, he goes out and he becomes the gospel to the Gentiles. But Paul is a Jew. So Paul had to wrestle with this a little bit. And you can see some of this in Romans 4. Is this blessedness? Are you in verse 9? Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? What we have been saying is that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So very simply... Before Abraham was circumcised, he got a promise, and he was credited righteousness. Now look at, look at what the end of verse 11 says. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised. Abraham also gets to be the father of the uncircumcised. That's us Gentiles. In order that righteousness might be credited to them. That's us. And he also, also... Both also is the father of all who believe, or sorry, he also is the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith. So he's making a distinction here. He's saying he's the father of the uncircumcised by faith. He's the father of those who are circumcised, who also walk by faith. It it was not just that you could uh, be 
related to somebody that earned you salvation. And that's what Paul is saying. But look at verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. The promise to all Abraham's offspring. That means the promise to the Jews did not end. Their national promises did not end. Not only to those who are of the law. Remember, that's not a statement of exclusion. That's a statement of inclusion. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. So those who are of the law and of the faith of Abraham form one family. Whether circumcised or not, his plan doesn't change. It has grown. We have been adopted into their plan, but we have not replaced it. Which is why Galatians 3 speaks about our equal value without ever diminishing the value. And I want you to think about this. When Paul writes about this subject, he says, it's a mystery. It's a great mystery that I have been revealed. You following with me? It's a great mystery how the Gentiles could be included into the family promise of the Jews. Galatians 3.26 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. How wonderful is that church? We get to be sons of God. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does that mean if there's no Jew or Greek? Does it mean that Jews stop being Jews when they come into Christ? Does it mean that Greeks stop being Greek? Does it mean they merge on some kind of level where it's all just mixed and and blended like Houston? No. If that was true, then males would stop being males in the kingdom and females would stop being females. <laughs> what do you have to do to a male to make him not a male anymore? My friends, don't do that to the Jews in the gospel. All right? There are still males and females, of course. You can't go, men in the room, you can't go into the women's restroom, can you? No. Because male and female in function still exist. Standing before God, positionally righteous before God, they are the same in God's eyes. But the functions are still separate. There are still distinct functions. What started with one life, one family, and one nation now includes new adoptees into the nation. That's us. We're adopted and grafted in. But you have to ask, this new creation must have caused the Jews to wonder. I mean, if you were Jewish... And you lived on the promises that God gave thousands of years beforehand. And then all of a sudden this new sect emerges and says that we're all, we've been grafted into your promise. Wouldn't you be a little bit skeptical? Yeah. That's why Paul has to say in Romans 3 verse 1, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? And what value is there in circumcision? What is his answer? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. There is an advantage to being a Jew. Because they have been, as we've already said, they have been prepared for the gospel. Uh, Romans 1.16 says, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation first for the Jew, then for the Greek. The gospel was prepared in advance for them. It also mirrors what is said in Romans 11. Uh, Paul says, But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and His calls are irrevocable. His gifts and calling, His plan that He has for national Israel is irrevocable. The plan never changed. It starts and ends with Israel. 
You were included in the mysterious middle portion of the plan. Noted I said middle portion. That was the middle portion. Matthew 23 verse 39 says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is speaking to Jews, and he's in Jerusalem, and he's telling them, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. That means there has to be a Jewish Jerusalem. There has to be Jews in the city, and they have to be calling out to him. Wonder why, the, wonder why the devil is trying so hard to work against that. And I want to say another thing. If every eye is going to see Jesus when he returns, and yet no one will see him until they say, blessed is he, that means that he won't return until the Jews see him first. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Ephesians 2.14 is a wonderful passage. For he himself is our peace. He has made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. There no longer is the hostility of Jews and Gentiles being separate. Now they can be one man. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Noted the law is not done away with. What is done away? It's Regulation and its curse and its principle of causing death by trying to religiously obey it. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two. There has to be one new man out of the two. So that means if one is missing, then we don't have a whole man, do we? If one of the two is missing, then we don't have one new man. That's... That, that right there is the case for why they have to remain this distinct. Jews have to remain distinct as Jews, Gentiles as Gentiles, so they can complete one man. The two must be present, church. One, the spiritual inclusions, cannot displace or replace the natural descendants. We are the spiritual inclusions. We are the adoptees. We can't displace, displace the natural Jeremiah foresaw this problem, and I'm going to quote this to you. Jeremiah 33, verse 23. Read this on the screen as we cover this. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed what these people are saying? The Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose, so they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. The son that he chose, the one life to affect the family and the nation, is Jesus Christ, the blessed King of Israel. And Jeremiah wasn't the only one that saw this would be a problem. At Paul warned the church. In Acts 20, turn with me to Acts 20. And we're going we're gonna to dig in to Paul's warning here. In Acts 20, Paul is with the Ephesian elders. Now, note it. What did we quote earlier? Ephesians 2, making one man out of the new. That's what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. I want you to keep that in mind. Paul talking about the one new man as he states this in Acts 20. Speaking with the elders of the Ephesians. says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. What do wolves do, church? They devour and destroy. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. 
So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you, each of you, night and day with tears. Paul is in unceasing sorrow, warning them of something that is going to happen in the future. Consider what Paul said about his brothers in this moment. Consider what Paul said about the Jews. He said, I have unceasing sorrow and anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I be cut off for the sake of my brethren, the, the, the people of my own race. Again, he notes a very distinct race in the New Testament. Paul had this desire for them to receive the gospel, and with unceasing sorrow and anguish, he is writing and saying, I could wish that I was cut off. Like, like Moses, Lord, take me. Now consider that. With that mindset, Paul was willing to lose his salvation. He was willing to lose his salvation so that the brothers of his own race would receive their Messiah. And then he's warning the, the, the elders in Acts. He's saying, for three days, with night and, night and day, with tears, for three years, sorry, night and day with tears, I have warned you that savage wolves will come from amongst your midst. And they will devour you. They won't spare the flock. Could Paul possibly, could Paul possibly have known what would happen in the church to split up that one new man? Could Paul possibly have known what would happen in the church to cause that wall of hostility that was supposed to be brought together in Christ to be divided again? Could Paul have known what would happen to the Jewish nation the next 2,000 years at the hands of so-called Christians. Could he have known? We were talking this morning. What would Paul have done if he knew? What would Paul have done if he knew that his own writings would be used to kill his own race? I wanted, to the best of my ability, to chronicle for you some of what has happened in that dividing wall of hostility. Some of what has occurred after Paul warned about this. Some of what has occurred in history, I'm going to try my best to to go through with this. I promise some of you are going to want to weep. Some of you are going to rejoice at the thought that he's coming back to save them. He's coming back. I'm going to share with you a foremost scholar named Edward Flannery. He said, the vast majority of Christians even well-educated, are all but totally ignorant of what happened to Jews in history and of the culpable involvement of the church. It is little exaggeration to state that those pages of history Jews have committed to memory and are the very ones that have been torn from Christian and secular history books. If you go today to seminaries and you listen to their teachings on church history, you can literally stand there and say, when do you teach about what the church did to the Jews? And in shame they say, we don't. You could read the foremost scholarly book, Philip Schaff, History of the Church, and what the church did to the church is barely mentioned. Christianity has sought to erase the pages that the Jews are committing to memory. The German president in 1990... He stated, the Jewish culture is a culture of remembrance. They always seek to remember things done in the past. We as Germans seek reconciliation. But if we want reconciliation with them, we must first remember with them. And that's what we're going to do. Let's talk a little bit about anti-Semitism in the church. 
Most of us are, well, are aware that it's happened, and very few of us are aware of how pervasive it is through the culture of Christianity, through even uh, notable Christians in the past that we, we might like. We're blind of it. Let me read a few quotes for you, just so I can explain. I promise you, if you get bored through this, just tell me I'm bored, okay? You make a promise that if you get bored right now, you're going to raise your hand and say, hey, I'm bored, because we'll we'll end it, and uh, we can go home and feel good about ourselves. But we need to capture what that dividing wall of hostility has caused between Jew and Gentile today. Hippolytus, in 170, he lived from 170 to 236, Famous Christian father said, He maintained that the Jews will forever receive God's just punishment for having murdered Jesus. And Origen, whom we quote sometimes because of his historical writings, he agreed with him. There's a man named St. John Chrysostom. And he lived from 344 to 407. And he's a man described as a brightful, cheerful, gentle soul, a sensitive heart, a temperament open to emotion and impulse, and all this elevated, refined, transformed by the touch of heaven. Sounds like a great man of God, right? Such a man was St. John Chrysostom. He was known as one of the most eloquent preachers of truth and love. His very name, Chrysostom, conferred on him after his death, means golden mouth for his eloquence. This man was esteemed as one of the greatest of the church fathers. Chrysostom preached his infamous seven sermons against the Jews in which he spoke of a serious illness, a disease, an ailment, which had to be rooted out from the church. And what was this dangerous and serious malady? He explained, in the words of this golden-tongued preacher, listen to this, the synagogue is worse than a brothel. It is the den of scoundrels and the repair of wild beasts. The temple of demons devoted to idolatrous cults. It is a synagogue worse than a brothel. A temple of demons the refuge of brigands and debauchees, and the cavern of devils. Again, faithless theologians trying to reform the truths of the gospel. How about Gregory, a 4th century bishop of Nyssa, described the Jews as murderers of the Lord, killers of the prophets, enemies and slanderers of God, violators of the law, adversaries of grace, whose minds are held in darkness, filled with the anger of the Pharisees, a Sanhedrin of Satan's criminals, degenerates, enemies of all that is decent and beautiful. Again, what would Paul have done knowing what would happen here? Eusebius of Alexandria began every paragraph in the first half of his sermon on the resurrection in this way. Woe to you wretches, you who were called sons and became dogs. Woe to you stiff-necked and uncircumcised. From being the elect of God, you became wolves and sharpened your teeth upon the Lamb of God. Do you think Jesus would ever say anything about that, uh, like that to his own race? No. Peter the Venerable, a contemporary Bernard, was known as the meekest of men, a model of Christian charity, considered the most peace-loving man of all time. And he said to the Jews, I address you, who till this very day deny the Son of God. How long, poor wretches, will you not believe the truth? Truly, I doubt whether a Jew can be really human. I leaned out from... I lead out from its den a monstrous animal and show it as a laughing stock to the amphitheater of the world in the sight of all people. I bring thee forward, thou Jew, thou brute beast. And these are all Christians who write this. And we like to say, no, these, these weren't Christians. 
they didn't live as a Christian. They, they weren't loving like a Christian. But that's not how the Jews see it. Martin Luther. How great a man was Martin Luther. Listen, listen to this. Martin Luther was a man whose writings sparked the Protestant Reformation, whose great genius deeply impacted the German intellect, whose commentaries on Romans and Galatians helped bring about the conversions of John and Charles Wesley. Think about that. Whose sensitive pen produced the precious hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And what did Luther have to say about the Jews? First, their synagogues should be set on fire. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds. Fourthly, the rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach anymore. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to Jews. Sixthly, they ought to be stopped from usury. Seventhly, let the young and strong Jews and Jewesses be given the flail, the axe, the radical... Ho, the spade, the distaff, the spindle. Let them earn their bread by the sweat of their noses. We ought to drive the rascally lazy bones out of our system. Therefore, away with them. How many of you use PC Study Bible to study the Word? One of the most famously known and used uh, commentaries is Gerhard Kittel's uh, Dictionary of the New Testament. Kittel's 10-volume set of the New Testament. He said, this is what Kittle said, rather the Jews should accept discrimination and defamation as their lot. This is 1933. Let them be treated as guests in a foreign land, second class, beleaguered guests, of course. After all, they were Jews, weren't they? In fact, fact, according to Kittle, the only authentic Jews were those who in obedience take on themselves the suffering of dispersal. And we use his commentary every day. Is it possible that the words of Luther may have started the fires of the Holocaust? Is it possible? Very much. Very much so. I want to read to you just some of the the levies and charges that have been handed down towards Jews by the hands of Christians. In 306, prohibition of intermarriage and of sexual intercourse between Christians and Jews issued by the church. In 306, again, Jews and Christians are not permitted to eat together by the church. In 535, Jews not allowed to hold public office. 538, Jews not permitted to show themselves in the streets during Passion Week, that is Easter. 681, the burning of the Talmud and other Jewish books. In 1215, the marking of Jewish clothes with a badge. In 1222 AD, the construction of new synagogues are permitted. In 1267 A.D., compulsory ghettos where Jews are herded together and treated like animals. In 1279, Christians not permitted to sell or rent real estate to Jews. In 1434, Jews are not permitted to obtain academic decrees, all handed down by the church. I'm going to list for you a couple countries Jews have been kicked out of. The most... Recent to lift the ban is the country of Spain, who expelled their Jews in 1492. You know when they lifted that ban? 1968. The countries of Austria, the countries of Sicily, England, France, Spain, all countries have expelled all Jews from their country at one point in time. In fact, 
to kind of uh, briefly just show you the, the, the horrific enormity of all of this. I'm just going to read to you uh, one paragraph. Can I do that for you? Nazi hunter Simon Weisenthal has compiled a chronicle of Jewish martyrdom for every day of the year. There's a book called Everyday Remembrance Day in which you can look and chart every day of the calendar and see the events that happened on that day. I'm going to take one day for you, for example, one day, and read. This is June 23rd, just one day out of the Jewish suffering. In 1270 in Germany, seven Jews arrested without charges held against them, tortured and executed. In 1298, the Rheinflisch persecutions annihilated 146 Jewish communities in southern and central Germany. And in Weinsheim, 55 Jews are burned at the stake. 900 Jews of the Farge community of Wurzburg are slain, among them 100 who had sought refuge there from other places. 71 Jews are burned to death on the Eich River. In 1475, in the case of Simon of Trent, a Christian child is found dead, and Samuel, a wealthy Jew, and others of his brethren are falsely accused and subjected to torture. The boy is proclaimed a martyr, and the Jews are kept imprisoned and tortured from March to April. On June 23rd, Samuel himself is burned at the stake, and the others are broken on the wheel. In 1919, during a pogrom, 45 Jews are slaughtered, many of them severely wounded, and 35 Jewish women are raped by the military in Kiev, Russia. In 1941, the Germans invade Sokal, Poland, where 6,000 Jews are, are living, and they round them up and shoot them. In 1942, the SS murders 850 Jews in the district of Krakow, Poland. The first selection for the gas chambers in Auschwitz extermination camp in Poland takes place on the platform of the train arriving from Paris. In 1943, a deportation train leaves Paris for Auschwitz carrying 1,000 Jews, among them... 100 children under the age of 16 and 13 babies, all are killed upon arrival. That is one day of Jewish suffering at the hands of Christians. I just read to you one day. All right? And what you need to know about all this, I'm not just sharing this so we can, you know, stand up for the most picked on. That's not what we're doing here today. There's a goal in mind about this. I want you to know that these anti-Semitic events haven't stopped then. Listen to this statement. In 2012, the UN General Assembly has passed 22 resolutions against Israel. 2012. In contrast to the four against the rest of the world. Four against all the other nations on the world. 22 against Israel. In 2015, the General Assembly adopted 20 resolutions singling out Israel for criticism. And only three resolutions regarding the rest of the world combined. As of 2010, since its inception in 2006, the UN Human Rights Council has adopted 33 resolutions against specific countries, 27 of them against Israel. That means out of all the nations like Sudan, out of all the nations like Lebanon and Syria, they have received little and the UN has spent most of their time condemning Israel for hardly anything. Can you see the demonic attempt to slander them and separate them from the church? I want to read to you a few Christian authors today. These are, this is, I'm going to read to you one Christian author today that you can go and read. And this was written in 2018. This is a man whose name is Texay Mars. 
And he is author of the number one bestseller, Dark Secrets of the New Age. Number one bestseller. This is what he said. The Jews are on the fast track to their occult fate. They have made an agreement with hell, a covenant with death, and payments on their debt to Satan must be made in accordance to that contractual agreement. The ultimate goal of the Jews is the annihilation of almost every Gentile man, woman, and child, and the establishment of a satanic, Jewish-led global dictatorship encompassing the planet. This goal is expressed by the Jews in their most sacred books, the Talmud and the Kabbalah. The Jewish majority hates humanity. They despise life. They hate God. Therefore, they are psychopaths and love death. The plan of the Jews is to employ the tools of chaos magic to use deception, lies, money, craft, and magic to obtain their ultimate goal. Can you not see how that's birthed out of the pit of hell? How can we go from what clearly is stated about God's favor towards Israel to this? Anti-Semitism is the only thing that unites white supremacists and black supremacists. Have you ever thought of that? It's the only thing that Muslim radicals White supremacists and black supremacists have in common. How is that possible? How is it possible that Ku Klux Klan leaders stand up and shout today? You can see it on YouTube. Shout six million more. Six million more. And all the while, Luis Farrakhan, a noted black supremacist, can say, I think Hitler's a great man. I think he's great in what he did. I hate the Jews. I'm not anti-Semite. I'm anti-termite. How could they agree on such a subject when they're opposed to each other? It's because Satan has a plan to destroy what is going to happen in the future. I want you to listen to a little bit about the demonic nature of the suffering of the Jews. And just grasp for a second. Anytime you're in Israel and you mention Jesus to a Jew, he pictures Jesus as a Nazi who is pushing him into a gas chamber. That is the typical Jewish view of Jesus, is someone who has caused the death of millions of his brothers. I, I did a study. I tried to chronicle Jewish suffering throughout the ages. I came up with a figure I think is very conservative, estimated somewhere around 15 million Jews throughout history killed at the hands of Christians alone, not Muslims, not pagans, Christians alone. You know what that means? There's only 14 million Jews on the planet. That means that every Jew is related to someone who has been persecuted by a Christian. Think about that. I want you to listen to the demonic nature of this. The Holocaust is inexplicable from a solely natural point of view. There had to be a greater force at work. Can you agree with that? Inciting and provoking the Nazis and their cohorts. The words of Adolf Eichmann towards the end of World War II defy human description. It's illogical. I shall leap into my grave laughing, he said, because the feeling that I have the deaths of six million people on my conscience be for me a source of extraordinary satisfaction. The Nazis were entertained by Jewish suffering and torment. Any of you heard of the uh, writer Elie Weissel? Wrote the popular book Night. He was a survivor of Auschwitz. He said this, Imagine the chief rabbi of the town forced by German officers to clean the pavement to sweep it with, its be- with his beard. And all around, proud soldiers, warriors puffed up with their victories, slapped their thighs in merriment. Imagine a distinguished officer, a man of good family, orders Jewish children to run like rabbits, and then takes out his revolver and begins shooting at the terrified living targets. 
imagine. He said, no, let us not imagine anymore. In those days, the executioners had more imagination than their victims. They were satanically created, writes Weissel. They used every science and technique. Among them were philosophers and psychologists, doctors and artists, experts in management and specialists in poisoning the mind. These were all driven, all impelled, all given over to the humiliation, degradation, and extermination of the Jews. But only yesterday they were neighbors and friends, he said. These were done by the neighbors and friends of the Jews. When the Nazis murdered all the patients of the Lodz ghetto hospitals, they threw newborn babies out of the upper story hospital windows. Precious Jewish infants were splattered on the pavement. But for one teenaged SS soldier, this was not enough. He asked permission and was granted permission to catch the falling babies on his bayonet. What could cause such a demonic-inspired phenomenon? It is because the devil hates the Jews and he hates the plan of God. I want to share with you Luke 19, verse 37, as we move from here. The reason the devil despises the Jews... It's because the salvation of Israel means the return of Jesus, the resurrection of the righteous, and the revival of the church, and the restoration of the earth. That is why the devil is seeking to destroy them. Luke 19, verse 37 says, When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they have seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're receiving Jesus. They're shouting Hosanna. And what is Jesus thinking about? Verse 40, he says. Sorry, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Notice this, that as they're coming and they're shouting Hosanna, Jesus is thinking about one thing. He's weeping over the city of Jerusalem. He's weeping over His people because He knows what will happen to them. Capturing God's heart means capturing God's love for His own people. It means capturing the burden that God has for Israel. Luke 23, 27. Large number of people followed Jesus. At this point, He's carrying the cross. Including women who mourned and wailed for Him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for Me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Again, Jesus is not even thinking about Himself. He's thinking about His brothers and sisters here. He's weeping for them. Isaiah 22.4 Therefore I said, turn away from me and let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. Isaiah is broken because of what is happening to his people. And he says, do not try to console me. Don't try to make it better. Let me weep over the destruction of my people. When we ask God, 
What is your heart? When we ask God, what do you want for the Jewish people? The response is mourning for the things done. Mourning for the way that the church has tried to separate the Jews from coming in. Mourning for the way that the devil has tried to stop the Jews from joining together with the Gentiles. For the Gentiles and joining with the Jews and becoming one with him. Mourning over the current state. Mourning over what is happening today. Isaiah 63, 9, in all their distress, he too was distressed, talking about God. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. Redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them off. This is talking about the judgment that God brought. He brought the judgment, but in their distress, he was also distressed. God is looking at his people and he cannot stop. He cannot stop at being distressed. This reminds me of Paul in Romans 9. Turn with me to Romans 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, these of my own race, the people of Israel. Again, the specific distinction. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised. We're going to learn to rejoice over what God is going to do in Israel. One of the things that's been blowing my mind lately is reading the passages where Jesus is saying... Uh, He's looking out at Jerusalem and he's saying, look, Jerusalem is going to be trampled down by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. It's incredible to me. If you go with us to Israel, you can look out to Jerusalem. You can see it's still trampled down by the Gentiles. But what you know it was, it, what is going to happen is like in Zechariah 14, he is going to stand on the Mount of Olives. He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives and he's going to open up a fountain He's going to open up a fountain for, for forgiveness for all of them. And then Romans eleven twenty six says, In this way, all Israel will be saved. We can look back at the suffering of the Jewish people, and we can see the diabolical plan of Satan. But we can also look forward and say the reason why Satan wants to destroy them, because he knows what will happen when the Jews are included in God's promise through Jesus. Romans 11, verse 11 says, Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. To make Israel envious. Let's ask a question this morning. Are you walking out of salvation? Are you walking out of salvation with fear and trembling in such a way that would make a Jew envious? We are called. It's come to us so that they become jealous. Jealous of what? Our relationship with the Father. What God is doing for us. What God is, is uh, bringing us into. The promises and everything. Are we living that life? Paul wrote that in Romans, he wrote in uh, Romans 11... That if their rejection meant loss for the, if their loss meant riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their riches bring to us? This morning we're talking about Israel, but I don't want you to think for a second 
that if we focus on Israel, that doesn't mean we focus on the other nations. By focusing on Israel, by blessing Israel, making them envious, we are bringing them a gospel, and they, their riches, will mean riches for the rest of the world. If they're lost, think about this for a second. If angels rejoice over one sinner who repents, the angels are rejoicing over a sinner that's repenting because of the loss of the Jews. Then how much rejoicing will there be when the fullness comes to the Jews? Church, this has to be our aim. This has to be our aim. We do not favor Israel because of the most picked on. We favor Israel because of the man, the land, and the plan that is laid out clearly through Scripture. The devil is trying to destroy that, but God has said he will always favor it, and nothing will take that away. The last thing I want to share with you are the words of a foremost professor, Eugene Berkowitz. He said, We might be more inclined to give Christian claims some credence had we seen Christians through the age behave as models of a redeemed humanity. Think about that. This is a Jew saying it. Looking through the window of history, we have found them in as much need of saving as the rest of humankind. If anything, their social failings are especially discrediting of their doctrine, for they claim it to be uniquely free of human sinfulness and freshly inspired by their faith to bring the world to the realm of love and peace until sinfulness ceases and well-being prevails. Jews know that the Messiah has not come. He also said, The moral bankruptcy of Christian civilization and the spiritual bankruptcy of Christian religion should cut us to the heart. Berkowitz says, After 19 centuries of Christianity, the extermination of 6 million Jews, among them 1.5 million children carried out in cold blood in the very heart of Christian Europe, encouraged by the criminal silence in virtually all Christendom, including that of an infallible father in Rome, was the natural culmination of this bankruptcy. A straight line leads from the first act of oppression against the Jews in in the 4th century to the extermination of the Holocaust in the 20th. What this Jew is saying should cut us to the heart today. And this is where we're going to come to a closing here. What he's saying is that, look, if we saw Christians living up to their claims, we might actually be inclined to give them some credence. What has happened? The devil has come in and he's tried to tear apart. He's tried to tear apart that one new man that God is trying to create. And he's caused Christians to, to make bold claims and not live up to what, he has pro- what they say and to what God has promised them. My question to you is what in our lives do we need to change that we would actually be walking out a type of faith that would make Israel envious? Notice the Jews, most of their devotion would put us to shame. They pray, they pray, they pray. Most Jews, they look at the suffering and they say, it's nothing. Even if we have to suffer more, we'll still praise the name of Hashem. What kind of life do we need to live that would make them envious? Secondly, what in our hearts have we had that have added to that dividing wall of hostility? If there's anything there, then we need to get rid of it because it's not in line with God's favor to Israel. And then thirdly, how do we need to be praying for the salvation of Israel? If the salvation of Israel brings riches to the world, then how do we need to be praying with that? Praying for that? We need to be praying, Oh Lord, reveal Yourself to them so that the gospel through them would reach all the other nations. Amen?
I'm going to invite Pastor Eric up to help close out this sermon. That hurts, doesn't it? You could be thinking, well, Justin is called to Israel, and so this is why this is a particular burden on his heart. That's true. The question is, how do you read a Bible that from beginning to end is a family story and not have the very same burden? And I'm going to tell you a secret. I cut him short. I cut him short because I'm worried how much you can take. We could literally go on for the next two hours with Protestant leader after Protestant leader that has read this book and come to the satanic conclusion that the Jews are the problem in the world. It is so sickening that I don't really want to cover it in its entirety from a pulpit or we will be speaking more satanic words than God's words. I want to read you just a couple things that were said about Jesus' birth. Okay? These are unprepared statements as we move to a time of prayer. I want to read you Mary's song. This is Mary glorifying the Lord when she finds out she is pregnant with Jesus. This starts in Luke 146. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Before I go any further, which people group do you think she has in mind? I'm not saying that it can't extend to others, but what do you think first and foremost was in her mind? He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. What does verse 54 say? He has helped his servant, Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants for a few years until the Gentiles come into the church. The birth of Jesus Christ was an expression of God's faithfulness in his promise to Abraham, to Abraham's physical descendants forever. She closes it with even as our fathers have said. This is the promise that was... You don't have to get 12 chapters into the Bible till the entire Bible is about a life that changes, a family that is blessed by that, and a nation that is formed by God that was intended to touch every nation in the world, but the touching of those nations does not eliminate the source of the blessing. Skip down in your Bible to Zechariah's song. This is when Zechariah figures out that his son is going to get to aid in Mary's son. Praise be to the Lord. Verse 68. 
the God of Israel. The God of Israel. Because he has come to redeem his people. How dare we twist the gospel into anything but favor for Israel? You not like it, but you can't make it untrue. The prophecies at Jesus' birth, the prophecies at his death, the scripture in the beginning of this book and the scripture at the end of this book are all one story, and we are Gentiles who were led into it and didn't even know it. See, a transformation happened in my life that caused me to then begin to be a witness to my family and then took us to the world. The same thing happened in Pastor Piro. Same thing happened in Pastor Sutherland. But before it ever happened to us, it happened to Jewish families and we're reading about their blessing. The two becoming one and the dividing wall of hostility being torn down doesn't mean that it's torn down and you kick them out. And if he has made the two one, let me ask, where's the other half? Ohad, would you come stand with me? There is a time coming when we'll have Ohad share with us. He's, uh, he's uncomfortable to stand on a stage and preach. I told him it's just furniture. If you listen to Ohad, you will hear him very critical of his own people. He has the right to be. He addresses the hearts of his people. One of the first things Ohad ever told me is this is supposed to be reciprocal. Yes, I can share with you things, but I deserve your correction. That's a man filled with God's spirit. You have to understand that there's a tremendous difference, though, between Ohad being critical of his own people as an insider and people that have descended from and been a part of and never noticed 1900 years of anti-Semitism doing the same thing. Why do we favor Israel? It's not because they were picked on. It's not because of a Holocaust. It's simply because God's book favors them. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's, that's what the nation will be saying at Christ's return. Will you help that come about? Or will you be one more group of people that says they're different but acts exactly the same? We're going to begin to pray. If, do you have a scripture you would like to read? Let's let it, our, again, unplanned. Are you all okay with unplanned? That's how we do all of our worship services. We might as well do our preaching the same way. As we heard from our beloved brother some horrible truths, God's book also gives the Gentiles a task and a plan on what they need to do to cause that jealousy in the Jews. And it's in Joel. Joel 2, 15 through 17. Blow the shofar in Zion. Proclaim a holy fast. Call for a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the leaders. Gather the children. Even infants sacking at breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room. Let the bride leave the bridal chamber. Let the Kohanim, we are all called to be a nation of priests. 
let the Kohanim who serves Adonai stand weeping between the vestibule and the altar. Let them say, spare your children, Adonai. Don't expose your heritage to mockery or make them a byword among the Goim. Why should the people say, where is their God? Verse 18 is the point. Then Adonai will become jealous for his land and have pity on his people. Let's consecrate our hearts. Let's tear our hearts, not our garments. Let's become more and more and more holy. So whenever when we meet a Jew, our holiness will stir up something inside him that says, I want what he has. That's what we are called to do. Could we put it Romans 11:26 on the screen? David, grab that shofar and let's make fools of ourselves. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Either that's true or it's not true. And for those that think it's already happened, we don't have time to address something quite that silly. There is work to be done. God has formed our church and our church is supposed to participate in that work. You can have different feelings about a lot of things and that's, it's not a problem. We all love each other. But we need to have the same heart that God expresses. We're not talking about saving Israel to the exclusion of everyone else. But we're also not talking about focusing on everyone else to the exclusion of Israel. This is a family matter. And you are adoptees into that family. Can you imagine if Cody cared nothing for Judah and nothing for Gabe because they had been disobedient? Would you think that he should be walking around with my last name if he hated those that were born with that name? How about if he was just indifferent and didn't care? What if he said they were no more or less important than anyone else? Would you think that was a little odd to a man adopted into a family? This began with Abraham. Jacob formed it into a family. And when he was changed into Israel, it became a nation. In the Newer Testament, this begins. It, It completes. It begins to fulfill as Jesus is baptized for righteousness sake, a transformed life. And he formed a family that was his nation. Only the lost sheep of Israel. The fact that in the middle it has included so many of us ought to make us want every single Israelite on the planet to be saved. Not become a faithless theologian that redefines this verse. And our Jewish brothers just told us how. And it's written on that sign. Holiness or die trying. The holiness of the God of Israel in you will draw the people of Israel. Could we stand to our feet? We're going to begin to pray. 
And we want salvation to every nation, but today that's not what we're going to begin to pray. If you were the father of a family, you wouldn't be praying for salvation of people you never met. You would be praying for your own family's salvation. Today I want to pray for the family of God's salvation. And we want to kick it off with a blowing of the shofar. Let your ears hear what the Spirit is saying. It's not a theological bent. It's not an axe to grind. It's the heart of God for His people. The first people that He picked. Would you blow the shofar as best you can? Almighty God, we ask that you would again have mercy upon your people. Lord, that the fountain would open in Israel. Mighty God, that there would be a cleansing of the house of God that would spread to the entire world. Lord, we're crying out in intercession for your people. And we are asking forgiveness for what our forefathers have done. Come and move upon us, Holy One. Father God, we love you. We want to set our hearts to you, Father God. We want to share your heart. And we want to bless the Jews with your words. Yevarechecha Adonai veishmerecha. Yaer Adonai panav elecha veichunecha. Isa Adonai panav elecha veyasem lecha shalom. This is what we all need, Father. This is what the Jews need, Father God. May it come to life now, Father God. We proclaim it now, Father God. We love you, Father God.